Hello, what's a PhD? Sounds like something too heavily and beyond rich. What does PhD mean to me? Honestly, it means that you're really stubborn and can handle a big data set. I, I think what the PhD means to me uh, is the opportunity to uh, practice and get experience in being an investigator. So to me, it's helped me build my career and build my knowledge of science. And now it's useful in that I've got a critical thinking mind. When we're planning things and strategizing, having that um, knowledge is really useful. What does a PhD mean to you? A researching process, not only for science, but researching process of like my own personality, my own mission, myself. PhDs are much more than researchers. They have their passion as well as desperation. Perhaps you are just one of them, struggling with research and life goals. This podcast series is therefore really for you and for those who wish to know you more. Now, welcome to the Passionate PhDs podcast and explore how PhDs have found their passion, career and themselves. Welcome to the Passionate PhD podcast. This is Yilis. Today, we have invited Nathan Sanders, who is an astrophysicist, a data scientist, and also the founder of two science communication groups in the United States. In this episode, we will learn about astrobytes and Kamsaikon. We will also learn astronomy and supernovae, as well as data science and entertainment industry, and also passion response function. So, here we go! Hi Nathan, thanks for joining the Passionate PhD podcast. Could you tell us more about yourself? Pleasure to be here. Thank you so much uh, for inviting me. And um, uh, my name is Nathan Sanders. I'm a scientist by training. I did my PhD in astronomy and I uh, graduated with that about four years ago. And uh, throughout my career, I've been uh, really passionate about two things, really. One is statistical modeling and data science. And two is uh, communicating science and science communication, education and outreach. And so I'm really fortunate today to have a, a position at a, a wonderful company in the entertainment industry that allows me to sort of flex both of those skills. Your story is very interesting and I'm so glad to have you. You did a PhD in astronomy and transitioned to data science in the entertainment industry. And you also founded two science communication groups, Astrobytes and Comsicon. Can you tell us more about them? Absolutely. So for me, one of the most rewarding parts about being a scientist uh, was the opportunity to engage with other scientists to spread the work that we do, uh, not only as astronomers, but throughout the scientific enterprise more broadly. So to share the amazing research that happens in laboratories, uh, in front of uh, computers and servers with uh, people outside the scientific and the research community. And so two of the ways that I found to do that when I was a graduate student were uh, one with a wonderful organization that we founded back in 2010 called Astrobytes. Mm -hmm. Astrobytes is the Reader's Digest for the Astrophysical Literature, which means that every day we take one new research paper in astrophysics and we summarize it in a brief and accessible format so that uh, anyone can understand that research 
And in particular, we're really trying to help undergraduate students who are future researchers themselves become more familiar with the astrophysical literature so that they can get involved in research more easily. Mm-hmm. So uh, Astrobytes is a collaboration of graduate students, of young scientists from around the world. In total now, I think um, since 2010, we've had uh, more than 100 authors, more than 100 young scientists contribute to this enterprise. And uh, in total, I think I, I should have looked at the latest statistics, but I think now we've had more than 2,000 articles published, research paper summaries. Wow. And we're really grateful to have had support from our professional society from the American Astronomical Society for our work. And that's helped us really reach a wide audience. So uh, I'm really proud to say that Astrobytes has become a real fixture in the astronomical community. And um, the most rewarding thing for me is to know that uh, many undergraduates have found it as something that's helpful to them in getting involved in research for the first time. And that's really, uh, that's really been our mission from the beginning. Do you find it all by yourself or as a group? Oh uh, yeah, there's, so there are a group of us, I think five of us at first, who are all first-year graduate students in astronomy at Harvard who founded it. It grew pretty quickly from there to include other authors. And you know, I, I said that our mission has always been to help undergraduates get more involved in research, which is absolutely true. But we've also always had a bit of an ulterior motive from the beginning, a secret mission. And that has been to uh, provide graduate students with opportunities to communicate science, to help graduate students build writing skills, build experience in communicating outside of their domain. And uh, for me personally, and I think for a lot of our authors, it's been really valuable for that. Yeah, I think it is very important, especially for PhD students, focusing on their studies and they want to have more outreach or outside experience to do more other things. So true. And I think it can be hard as a graduate student to find those opportunities because one, you have every incentive in the world to not do that and to just focus on your research. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, in, in my view, at least, that's really how our academic system is, is set up to, um, uh, to sort of make graduate students focus on research to the exclusion of other activities that really are important for building their own professional career. Mm. and for uh, science to have a broader impact on the public. Mm. Uh, And two, I think there's just not as many opportunities as there should be for young scientists to engage the public in that way. I think uh, oftentimes um, thought of as the realm of more senior scientists or sometimes even reserved for senior scientists. So um, I'm really glad to see uh, institutions like Astrobytes and many others uh, uh, explicitly provide that kind of opportunity to younger scientists. And Elizabeth, I have to turn the tables on you because, of course, you're involved in a, a sister organization of Astrobytes. So I'd love uh, for your listeners to hear the story of Chembytes if you haven't already told them. Hey, listeners, more about Chembytes will be provided at the end of the show. And now, let's learn about another group that Nathan has founded, ComSciCon. to make sure to talk about uh, ComSciCon as well. ComSciCon uh, stands for the Communicating Science Conference Series, mm. and it's a series of, uh, <laughs> of conferences on science communication, of course, uh, that's been operating for six years now, and it's operated by graduate students for graduate students. And I, I think it's really unique in that way, and that it's a student-driven, student-driven initiative that's really oriented around helping graduate students uh, develop not only skills to be excellent science communicators, but also to take on leadership positions in science communication. Uh, And we have two main programs at ComSecCon. We have a flagship annual workshop, which uh, has for the past six years taken place in Boston each June. Uh, We've just been overwhelmed by the response and the level of interest and demand for that event. So we typically get about a thousand applications from graduate students 
across the U.S. and Canada each year. And unfortunately, we only have space for about 50 at our uh, flagship annual workshop. And uh, we do fully fund graduate students to attend. There's no charge. There's no registration fee. We even pay for travel. Um, but of course, we can't afford to do that for a thousand people every year. <laughs> so that ends up being an event that's really, really heavily focused on leadership in science communication, trying to select graduate students who have demonstrated achievement and really remarkable capacity for future uh, leadership uh, to do things like found new science communication organizations and to extend opportunities to communicate science to more and more students. But we also have a second program, which is a, a network of franchises across the country. So because we can't serve everybody that we'd like to through our national workshop, we use these franchise events, which are organized by other graduate students, by alums of our flagship workshop program, uh, to reach a broader audience. So in 2018, we'll have uh, 10 of these franchise events in different locations around the country. Uh, so that means we're serving 10 times as many students through uh, this network of franchises than we are from our flagship event alone. And uh, we're looking to continue growing from there. Mm -hmm. And I really like your idea about this is by graduate students for graduate students, empowering them to do things by themselves and for themselves. You can tell that's sort of a theme in my thinking, how to support young scientists to communicate their work and the work of their field more widely and to sort of propagate that impact by helping other graduate students have those same opportunities. And uh, ComSlicon really has become a hub for exactly that. So we have these incredibly motivated, passionate young scientists who come to our events. And, uh, and the outcomes from ComSlicon that we are always most excited to see is when a new collaboration forms at one of our conferences, when two uh, students meet each other and uh, start to um, take on a new idea together, start a new initiative together. Uh, from our events. So we've had lots of great uh, nonprofits, um, other conference series, podcasts, uh, websites, blogs founded at ComSecon, and we're just, uh, we're overwhelmed by that, uh, uh, that, that propagation of our, um, our mission and our ethos around supporting young scientists to communicate their work. Hmm. Actually, how did you find ComSecon? You started Astrobytes first, right? How did ComSciCon come along? You're exactly right. Uh, Astroites was founded first, and ComSciCon really grew out of Astroites. Uh, to be perfectly honest with you, the original idea for ComSciCon uh, was really focused on Astroites and on astronomy specifically. We had this uh, amazing network of students around the world who were writing for Astroites, and we thought we were doing great things together already, but we could probably do even better things if we actually got to meet each other in one place. So we put together a proposal to fund a conference for Astroites authors and uh, we figured out pretty quickly that we were much more likely to get support if it wasn't just for astronomers, but if it was a more broad initiative. So that pretty quickly turned into a um, conference series, ComSecon, across all scientific and engineering disciplines. And uh, there is such a, a huge community of uh, science and STEM communicators that, that that idea has really taken off. Is it much more American-focused right now? Is it possible to extend more around the globe? That's a great question. Uh, yeah, so our bite sites... Uh, really have an international presence, and they're not exclusive to any one territory. Uh, but ComSciCon, unfortunately, has had some geographic boundaries, uh, and not not intentionally, really just because of financial and administrative reasons, because we do pay for student travel, and of course that's more expensive when uh, when you think about students coming from overseas. And there's also issues, of course, with, with visas and other administrative um, concerns. So we'd really, really like to expand ComSciCon internationally. Uh, we actually, for the first time in 2018, were able to open our doors to Canadian students, which we're really excited about, and we'd like to continue growing from there. Ah, 
that's exciting. So how do you manage your time during your PhD when you are doing so many things about science communication? Oh, and astronomy is also hard, right? That's a good question, yeah. Um, you know, I, I find it such a hard question to answer because, of course, time management is such a, a personal and individual thing, and it depends so much on the particulars of your research and the project you're working on and uh, everything else that's going on in your life. Uh, I, I guess for me, I had a, a perspective that I think helped me to divide my time. And uh, frankly, I had some some personal advantages. So the perspective that really helped me is that I viewed communication as as integral a skill for my career as uh, statistical methods, uh, ast astronomy uh, knowledge, domain knowledge, um, or any other technical skill that was part of my research. And when I look back at, at my career so far, I think that's really borne out. I think my skill as a communicator has been at least as important to uh, my own success and what my employers have looked for in my skill set as uh, my technical capabilities. And I think that's generally true across uh, science. But unfortunately, I think that message isn't always uh, delivered to students. And I think it's not always recognized as widely as it should be how integral communication skills are. So the way I, I like to think about this is that you could do the most amazing research in the world. It could be it could be groundbreaking. It could be completely accurate and correct. It could be really novel, and it should uh, potentially have a, a huge impact. But your work won't have any impact at all unless you're able to communicate it successfully to other people. The only value that your research will have is the value that you can succeed in communicating to other people. If you can convince someone that your work is relevant to them, that it really is new and interesting, and that they should care about it, uh, it's not going to impact anything that anybody else does in your field or beyond. So that's why I think communication skills are so critically important. And uh, I really, um, uh, I'd really like to do everything that I can as a scientist to help our field uh, recognize and promote the importance of communication skills, especially uh, for students who are early in the career. Uh, the personal advantage that I had is that I'm uh, uh, very, very lucky to be married to an incredibly great scientist named Shannon Mori. And uh, Shannon's really been my partner in science communication endeavors for many, many years. So one of the first things that we ever did together after we met was volunteer with a wonderful organization at our undergraduate institution, Michigan State University, called Michigan State Science Theater. So with that group, we went all across the state of Michigan doing live science demonstration performances uh, for K-12 students. And it was just incredibly influential for both of us in thinking about um, what we found exciting and rewarding about science and what we wanted to do with our careers. And that's led to many other things over the years, including collaborating on both uh, the Byte sites and ComSciCon. So Shannon uh, has uh, really focused on science communication in her career. She's a professional uh, K-12 teacher now working in the Lawrence Public Schools here in Massachusetts. And uh, so I'm fortunate that we still get to uh, collaborate on science communication projects very frequently. But uh, I think if I didn't have that uh, that sort of personal incentive to continue focusing on science communication, I think it definitely would, be, would have been harder. Just a reminder to our listeners, Shannon is the founder of Cambytes. That's right, yep. I think uh, back in 2011, Shannon, while she was an MIT graduate student, founded Cambytes, a sister organization of Astrobytes. I'm so glad she founded Cambytes. So, in your PhD, what did you study? Oh, that's a great question. Yeah, I'd be glad to uh, tell you about my uh, PhD thesis research. So I focused on core collapse supernovae, which are the explosions of the most massive stars in the universe. So when um, stars that are more massive than our sun 
reach the end of their lives after hundreds of millions or billions of years, uh, what happens is that um, they essentially run out of fuel. They run out of fusion products at their core. And without that fuel, they don't have energy to sustain themselves against gravitational collapse. And so the stars do end up collapsing. Uh, and that collapse sort of counterintuitively actually creates an outward explosion. There's sort of a, a bounce back that happens after the incredible amount of mass that's in a star falls to the center. And those explosions are called supernovae. And they're some of the most energetic, uh, literally explosive events in our universe. And so we can actually see them from enormous distances, uh, even uh, frequently now, uh, literally halfway across the observable universe, billions of light years away. So uh, a big part of my thesis research focused on observing actually the most common type of supernova that happens in the universe called a, a type two supernova. It's the explosion of kind of a, a standard kind of plain vanilla massive star. And the reason these are so important in my mind is that they're actually what seeds galaxies like our own with heavy chemical elements. So after the Big Bang, our universe really only had hydrogen and helium and a little tiny bit of heavier elements, but mostly just hydrogen and helium. And of course, with only that, we could never have rocky planets like the Earth or human bodies that are full of carbon, oxygen, iron, and other heavy elements. And it's really at the cores of those massive stars that those elements are fused together and are created. And it's through those supernova explosions that those heavy elements get out into galaxies so that they can form uh, planets and, and people and other living things. So this is about supernovae explosion and how planets are formed. Am I correct? Yes. And so I really focused on uh, the observational properties of supernovae. So trying to study the light that's emitted by those exploding stars so we can learn more about the physical processes that uh, lie behind those explosion mechanisms and the massive stars that led to them. So do you talk much about your research during your PhD? Because I think many people will be interested in astronomy. Yeah, I, I think um, astronomers really have kind of a, uh, a natural benefit that our science is so, um, so much of interest to the public. Uh, that it sort of makes communication a little easier because people are often excited to hear about it. And I think on the flip side, it really means that astronomers have a special obligation in my mind to be actively communicating their work, sharing it back with the public, and helping the public understand why investment in science is valuable, not only for producing uh, technology, and astronomy has led to many advances in technology, especially uh, with respect to uh, imaging and remote sensing, uh, but also because it helps us, uh, that the more uh, basic side of research helps us understand the universe that we live in, and that has uh, really exciting benefits as well. So you were doing much about astronomy research and science communication with Astrobytes and Comsicon, and now you are the data scientist. What's your transition process from all those roles to what you are now? Yeah, so for, for me, the transition was really precipitated by kind of an eye-opening event. And for me, that was about halfway through my thesis research. Um, I uh, found myself needing to learn more and more statistical methods to be able to pursue my research in astronomy. I just needed to, um, I needed to learn new techniques to be able to control for biases in the observational data that we were collecting, which is often a a need for astronomical studies, and to be able to analyze the large amounts of uh, telescope data that were that was required for my thesis work. So um, I took on a, a secondary field, which at Harvard is sort of like doing a minor on your PhD, but a secondary field in uh, computational science or data science. 
at a great institution at Harvard called uh, the IACS, the Institute for Applied Computational Science. And so in doing that, uh, I was, first of all, able to really uh, positively impact my thesis research and directly learn a lot of new skills that uh, went directly into the, the publications that uh, were part of my thesis. But it also made me realize that uh, the aspect of my research that I really loved, and I really did love my thesis research and really enjoyed doing it, was the statistical methodology and kind of the data science aspects. And so as soon as I realized that, I thought I really owed it to myself to explore applications of data science in astronomy, but also outside of that field. So I started uh, trying to learn more about careers and opportunities and areas of research outside of astronomy and statistics and in data science. And uh, through a, a bit of a circuitous path, I found a really amazing opportunity in entertainment, which is uh, where I've made a career now for about five years. Wow, you are very clear about what you are doing. You know you are interested in data analysis, maybe? And you pursue a minor in computer science. Yeah, you know, when I tell the story in retrospect, it probably seems like a natural progression. But at the time, it definitely didn't seem like that. So when I started my PhD, I'd actually never taken a statistics course before and uh, really had a very limited background in that area. And uh, I found that I, I really needed to develop those skills just to pursue my astronomy research. And uh, doing that, just trying to get up to speed with what I needed to know for astronomy, ended up taking me on this whole different path. So it's a, a bit of a random walk process. And of course, I think that's very common for uh, students. And I think that's why it's so important to expose yourself to a variety of uh, research disciplines and other opportunities. Because if you don't learn more about other things that you can do with your career, you might close off uh, opportunities that you, that you might find incredibly rewarding and exciting. There's just no way to know until you do a little bit of investigation. Mm. I guess opening up yourself to more opportunity is very important. But how can you do so many things? Research, computer science, astrobytes, and comsycon. Uh, I don't know if I have a, a, a great or succinct answer to that. I mean, I, I think a few other factors that I think about is, um, one, I, I do have a lot of interest, and I think every, everybody does and every student does. Uh, but I think sometimes there are incentives in your career that make you shut out certain interests and really just focus on one thing. And I think sometimes that's that leads to wonderful accomplishments and achievements in that area, and that's that's definitely not a bad thing. Uh, but I think often it's beneficial for students to be more open, as you put it, and to explore more interests. And frankly, to, to take risks, so to try something out, even if you're not certain you're going to succeed, to take a little bit of time away from something that you are focused on, uh, because it is important to cultivate those other interests and expose yourself to other areas. And uh, for me, that's meant entering into a lot of different areas in uh, my career, some of which I've uh, continued on and, and, and still very passionate about, um, and some of which I haven't. But I'm really glad that I took those risks. I'm really glad that I've tried other things over time, and it's led to a, a much uh, richer and fuller, and I think more productive career in the end. Mm -hmm. So be more open and willing to take risks. <laughs> and I, I think that translates to really concrete things for students, too. Uh, so one, I, th I think especially for graduate students, it's uh, very common to not uh, take classes outside of your department. Uh, but I'd, if, the, if the opportunity is there for you at your university, I'd really encourage it, uh, especially in areas that you're interested in, um, uh, even if they're a little bit tangential to your degree program. One of the opportunities that I took advantage of as a student at Harvard is to uh, do basically a summer internship through a wonderful program at Harvard's Kennedy School called the Rappaport Institute Public Policy Fellowship, which is actually open to any graduate student in the Boston area, whether you're a Harvard student or not. 
And uh, the Rappaport Fellowship uh, basically provides students with an opportunity to go work for a summer in any state, local, or federal uh, public office in the Boston area. So I got to work for two amazing state legislators at Massachusetts uh, State Legislature working on environmental policy, which is not directly related to my work in astronomy, but has led to, um, uh, ever since then, really a lifelong passion for environmental issues and uh, a lot of volunteer and extracurricular activities in that area. And I think it's really helped me develop skills in, in advocacy and, again, science communication and in analysis uh, that have really benefited my professional career as well. Mm-hmm. Do you go to a lot of conference during your PhD? I did, yeah. You know, um, to, so uh, I'm sure this varies a lot by field, but uh, for me, I found our professional society's big annual meetings really rewarding, the American Astronomical Society Conference. Um, not necessarily because there were you know, specific talks or sessions I went to that were really rewarding, but because it was an opportunity to grow connections across a, a much bigger swath of the field than I would have access to as a student in one institution alone. And uh, I would definitely encourage any students uh, listening to this podcast or interested in communication to consider applying to a CompSycon event. Uh, we do have uh, almost a dozen events now throughout the year across the country. Um, so if you're interested in communication, I think there's no better place to meet like-minded students and have the opportunity to get involved in uh, new science communication initiatives. So how do you find your transition from an astrophysicist to data scientist? How do you find the entertainment industry? An astrophysicist to entertainment industry is just interesting. Yeah, uh, for me, the reason I was really drawn to entertainment is um, uh, not because I have a longstanding uh, passion or I'm very knowledgeable about the industry. Um, it's not because I'm like a, a film buff or a, a big uh, fan of uh, television, for example, uh, but it's really because um, the industry sort of reached a turning point uh, right at the time that I was finishing up my PhD around 2014. So uh, when I was uh, finishing up at Harvard, a company called Legendary Entertainment, a Hollywood studio, uh, which was uh, led by a CEO named uh, Thomas Toll at the time, uh, was embarking on a bold new initiative. So Legendary had uh, just at that time created a brand new top-level division in the organization uh, called an, its Applied Analytics Division. And Applied Analytics was really meant to be the first, uh, the first division of any studio in Hollywood that was focused on using data and evidence to inform how movies are made, uh, distributed, and marketed. Uh, so for me, the opportunity of Legendary meant uh, being able to approach problems from a really fresh perspective every time. So I think as scientists, so much of the work that we do by necessity, um, and because because it's often very, very exciting, is incremental. It's trying to find um, an area where someone has already done great work in the past, maybe a dozen researchers have already done great work in the past, and trying to do it just a little bit better and to push the field forward in that way. And that type of incremental research is crucial. But I think scientists are always looking for a more of a green field area where they can be the first ones to tackle a problem. Because when you're the first one to take a scientific perspective on a problem, you can often make more dramatic advances more quickly than if you're doing incremental research. And that's, I think, really attractive to any scientist. But of course, there are precious few of those green field areas left in science. So much, there's so many wonderful scientists doing amazing work around the world, it's really hard to find a new area like that. So for me, what was exciting at Legendary is that they were trying to create a whole new area of science within the entertainment industry, and they were, they were looking uh, to bring on scientists who could really think about problems 
with a quantitative and scientific perspective for the first time. That's something I really wanted to be a part of. You mentioned about scientific perspective. What do you mean by scientific perspective, or what is scientific perspective mean to you? Oh, that's a good question. I think it's a hard question too. <laughs> uh, so I, I think um, I think part of it is taking an objective perspective. Uh, trying to be open to all possible outcomes to a research question or hypothesis, and trying to uh, use a combination of well-justified, well-motivated theory, which is informed by domain knowledge and an understanding of uh, a field, uh, a market, or an industry, uh, but also data collected through observations and experiments uh, to find the right answer to a question. And for any scientist listening to this, I'm sure that sounds um, maybe not uh, not the perfect description of the scientific method, but it probably sounds like a pretty obvious description of how science works. Um, but of course, in other domains outside of science, that's not necessarily the approach and the perspective that's taken. So again, I think if you can find a domain where that type of scientific approach isn't the standard, uh, you can really potentially have a big impact if you take that perspective. And uh, for our group in the entertainment industry as well, a big part of what we do has been to apply quantitative methodologies, uh, data science and statistics, and um, observational methods from the physical and social sciences uh, in a way that I, that I think is really unique. Uh, I wanted to be sure to mention, too, so uh, I was at Legendary for a little bit more than four years, but just recently, our applied analytics division based here in Boston has been acquired by a different company. So now our applied analytics group is part of uh, Warner Media, which is what used to be called Time Warner and is now part of AT&T. So uh, we still have our, our same group together that uh, that five years ago embarked on this bold new initiative in the entertainment industry, uh, but now we're helping a, a new company to um, do that uh, kind of path-breaking work that I described. Looks like many interesting things is happening. So what do you see yourself in future? Do you like working in the entertainment industry, or do you be focusing more on science communication? or they are just parallel things going on? That's a great question. Yeah, I, I'm definitely pursuing those two things in parallel, and they're both very important to me. Uh, so I, I think there's so much uh, exciting work left for us to do uh, at our applied analytics group in the entertainment industry. So uh, we've just recently made this transition to Warner Media, and so we're uh, really trying to identify all the areas where we might have a positive impact on the company and on the industry. And that's a really that means it's a really exciting time for us to kind of take a step back and evaluate uh, all the different areas where we might be able to have a, a really positive impact with the type of scientific perspective and data science methodologies that I described. So I'm uh, incredibly excited, motivated by, and committed to that aspect of my work. Uh, but science communication is also a huge part of my career, uh, both in the work that I do at Applied Analytics and uh, also in, in a lot of my extracurricular activity. So um, with respect to my career in entertainment, Science communication is just critical uh, because in, in business, again, to have an impact with what you do, it's not enough to do great work, but you have to successfully communicate to other stakeholders within a company, uh, within a marketplace, why that work is important, why it should impact a business uh, practice, and why it's in, um, and why it, why it represents an improvement other, over other approaches or methods. So I, I think uh, anyone in the business world would tell you that uh, communication skills are just vitally important to um, uh, to any project being successful, whether it's uh, related to data science or not. And so we certainly take that perspective in our work at Applied Analytics. And then 
outside of applied analytics, I'm still really deeply invested in CompSciCon and Astrobytes, and I'm very grateful to be a part of uh, CompSciCon's leadership team and uh, Astrobytes uh, uh, sort of alumni uh, administrative committee and I'm really committed to helping both of those organizations thrive into the future as well. Mm-hmm. I know there are many exciting things going on for Astrobytes as well. Uh, yeah, we're, so Astrobytes is fortunate to have grown a lot over uh, recent years and to have a really vibrant set of both a readership and set of authors involved in the institution. So it's really fun for us every year to uh, kind of turn over a crop of authors because we encourage every graduate student who writes for us to take a step back after a couple years and sort of open up opportunities for a new generation of authors. So that means every year we're getting really remarkable new students involved in our organization. And for those of us who have been around for a few of those cycles, it's just a pleasure to meet that new group each time. What advice would you have for PhDs in pursuing their careers? Oh, that's a great question. One, I, I truly do think that developing skills as a communicator are as important to your career as your domain knowledge and your discipline and as your um, as a, the, te- the technical skills that you develop as a researcher. So I hope every graduate student takes that perspective and really invests in their own professional development in that area and uh, to treat it as a really rewarding opportunity to uh, give back to the community as well, to take uh, your practice in science communication as an opportunity to share your research and research in your field with a broader audience. That's going to be really excited to learn about it. And Second, uh, as you put it really well a few moments ago, Elizabeth, to be open to new opportunities and to actively explore other domains outside of your thesis research as part of your graduate studies and to hold open the idea that there are going to be other aspects of your career, um, maybe in addition to, but uh, other aspects outside of the work that you're focused on for your thesis. I think uh, any well-rounded professional's career will include lots of uh, different activities over time. And uh, the best way to set yourself up for that type of broad portfolio of successful work is to um, identify the areas that you're really interested in early on in your career. Can I say follow the passion in whatsoever you are interested, not just only one particular study or focus? That's really well said, yeah, to follow your passion wherever it might lead. I think part of the reason for that, too, is um, if you really want to do great work, I think it's critical that you'd be really motivated by it, passionate about it, and invested in it. And if you don't know where the sort of optimum and your response function, your passion response function for an issue is, uh, then you won't be able to do your best work. You really have to find what uh, makes you most excited, what makes you feel most rewarded, uh, to be confident that you're making the the best contributions that you can to uh, your field of research and to society. I guess you're following your passion all along the way. So when you look back from retrospect, it is like natural step that you take. I'm certainly trying to, my best to do that. Before the end of the show, can you tell us what does PhD mean to you? That's such a good question. Um, I, I think what the PhD means to me uh, is the opportunity to uh, practice and get experience in being an investigator. And what I mean by that is the ability to uh, formulate your own research questions, uh, pursue them, through, uh, through experiments, through observations, through developing theory, through getting feedback from others, uh, through practicing communicating your ideas to others uh, in a way that it's really hard to as a, an early career professional in any other way. I think uh, the PhD really confers you with a special uh, obligation and opportunity to see a research project from end to end in a way that's really difficult to reproduce in other environments. So I think if you take that perspective uh, to your degree and you focus on uh, developing that kind of um, uh, exploration from a scientific perspective and that type of uh, uh, research leadership experience, 
uh, then you can really make the most of the degree. Thank you so much, Nathan, for sharing so many amazing stories with us. You are just so amazing. You did so many, so many things, and everything is just so interesting. And I think you are following your passion all along the way. But to me, it is just so amazing. Well, you're very, very kind, and I must say the same to you. So not only uh, Chembytes, which has sort of uh, brought us together, and I'm so glad that you did uh, reach out about that uh, all these years ago now. Uh, but also through this podcast, I'm really excited about it and to listen to it myself and to hear from everyone that you meet along the way.、Mm-hmm. Thank you for joining me today. Well, thank you so much for、uh, connecting with me today. I really appreciate the opportunity to chat with you, and um, and uh, yeah, thank you for your time. Thank you. Wait, this is not the end of the show. We talk a lot about astrobytes in the show, and indeed, it has brought about many sister sites, and Cambytes is certainly one of them. We have mentioned Cambytes in the show, so now time for Cambytes. Elizabeth, I have to turn the tables on you because, of course, you're involved in a, a sister organization of Astrobytes.、So、I'd love、uh, for your listeners to hear the story of Chembytes if you haven't already told them. <laughs> it is a very interesting experience, and it started out with Astrobytes. I heard it from a friend who writes for Astrobytes, and one day I said, "If there's a chemistry version, then it will be great," because I do chemistry. And he told me that indeed there's Cambys, so I was thinking to apply as a writer, though I do not know much about science writing at the time. And I just try, and when I email, um, I think I email you, am I right? <laughs> I think that's right. And you said Cambys was dormant for quite a number of years because there's a lack of authors, and you asked me to take it up, and I was like, oh my goodness. This is a really huge challenge. I have no experience at all, and you are asking me to take up. But um, okay, um, maybe I can just try. So I started writing, sending emails, and reaching out for authors, and we started campbites once again. We got a group of four, including me, writing in rotation once per month and posting once per week. We had another recruitment and got more people on board. Now there are absolutely no words that could describe how challenging but satisfying the process was. I think you're so right.、Uh, what you've taken on is quite a challenge, and it's really remarkable how you succeeded with it and how Cambytes has grown. And I, I want to make sure your readers know that they can visit Cambytes at cambytes.org, and they can visit Astrobytes at astrobytes.org. And、uh, our our Bytes community has really been growing a lot. So now we have eleven different Bytes sites in different fields. You can、uh, find them linked at the bottom of astrobytes.org and on all of our sites. And、uh, we really encourage other graduate students who are interested in this model and interested in building opportunities for students in their field to do science writing to consider starting your own Bytes site. So please feel free to reach out to、uh, either Elizabeth or I. I will surely link Astrobytes, Cambytes, and all other Bytes sites in the podcast summary here. Wonderful. Thank you for listening, and thanks to Peachling, the camera band, for offering music for this podcast series. They produce music that people could get lost in. While we could get lost during our life journey, we might eventually find ourselves throughout the process. Hope you are one of the passionate people. 
Thanks for listening. Stay tuned to discover more passionate PhDs in the next episode.